Hello, welcome to another McLaren Fans podcast. Um, joining us this week, um, we've got the second part with uh, Matt Bishop. Um, uh, anyone who's listened to the first part will obviously know that Matt was the former editor of F1 magazine. He was McLaren Communications Director from the 1st of January 2008. When was that? Uh, what date? It was the 1st of January, the 1st of January. 2008. <laughs> <laughs> until 2017 uh he then joined the w series in the leadership team and uh um well i was just about to say finished off his f1 career but maybe not just um his last job in f1 was uh, the head of communications for aston martin um and most of you will probably know him from his on this day tweets which are legendary on twitter so welcome back matt great to have you here again nice to see you again uh, joining us as always is Sarah. Say hello, Sarah. Hello, Sarah. And um, Andy Robinson. Hello, Andy. Thanks for remembering me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, we uh, we finished the last podcast talking about um, your sort of views and, and and why it was actually important to go and race in some of these areas like Saudi Arabia and stuff like that. Um, I guess that's probably a good place to sort of start and talk about a little bit about how Racing Pride came about, maybe? So Racing Pride, yeah. Well, Racing Pride exists to further the interests and support the aspirations of um, LGBTQ plus people in motorsport everywhere, not just drivers, but including drivers. Um, but also mechanics, engineers, people who work in marketing, comms, everything, everything at all. And we, uh, Richard Morris and I and others, uh, Richard Morris, uh, a racing driver, British racing driver, uh, who's a gay man, he, he and I and others set it up in 2019 in association with Stonewall. And most people listening or watching this will know Stonewall, which is obviously a charity, LGBTQ plus charity and a very good one. And they supported us and assisted us. And what do we do? In a nutshell, what do we do? Uh, I've already said the, the, the kind of aim, which is to support LGBTQ plus people everywhere that are involved in motor racing. And some people say to me, is that really necessary in 2023? You know, you're married to your husband. Uh, there are equal rights in most countries and blah, 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 blah. Well, yes. OK, that's good. And that's true. But there are also not equal rights in a number of countries. You know, there's still out of the 195 countries in the world, there's about 80 in which and I'm going to talk about male gay sex, by the way, at the moment, because the laws are so complicated for uh, female gay sex, lesbian sex, because unbelievably, so many countries don't really even um, suffice it as sex. They're so misogynistic. So at the moment, I'm talking about uh, the laws around two men or men having sex with each other. And there are 80 countries in the world in which that is a imprisonable offence. And there are about half a dozen and increasing and increasing countries in which it is a capital offence, an offence which can attract the death penalty. So, yes, things are better if you live in Islington, in North London, or if you live in Greenwich Village, 
or if you live in a cool part of Paris or Berlin and many, many, many other places. And we should welcome and celebrate that. But uh, they're not perfect everywhere. And they're also not easy for anyone growing up. And of course, a lot of racing drivers are young. A lot of racing drivers are teenagers, go-kart drivers, carters. And some of them, I mean, it's hard enough to come to terms with growing up at all when you're 13, 14, 15 and trying to work out who you are and who you might want to be with or love or get frisky with or whatever you want to do. It's difficult for all of us. It's doubly difficult if you're trying to be a racing driver at the same time, particularly when a lot of the people who run those junior kart teams are kind of unconsciously or subconsciously homophobic. I don't mean to damn them all. They're wonderful people. But sometimes I've heard people saying things, you know, the owners of kart teams saying to a 14-year-old lad, you drove really gay today, son. Now, does that matter? Some people would say, oh, don't be so pathetic. Why does it matter? It matters because it is normalizing the use of that word to be a pejorative. And that matters particularly when you're talking to children. Even if that 14-year-old knows perfectly well that he's straight, knows that perfectly well, you're still normalizing that terminology, which he can use to hurt others. And by the way, what 14-year-old is absolutely sure that he or she is straight. Generally, increasingly now, there's a rites of passage and people are on a, on a journey to finding out what they want to do, who they want to love and who they want to be. And being told that kind of thing is very hurtful and therefore distracting to a youngster who perhaps respects and fears, but certainly also respects that team boss. Oh, he just made me feel terrible. I must be terrible. And what it actually does is make this sport, the sport we all love, seem unwelcoming to people of different demographics, unless you're a, a white heterosexual male. Now, I've worked with Lewis Hamilton. He is heterosexual and male, but he's not white. And he's done a huge amount for the, um, the uh, people of colour community in terms of uh, making Formula One and motor racing in general appear more welcoming. You know, he started the Hamilton Foundation, put his money where his mouth is, in order to try to make our beautiful sport more accessible to people of colour, youngsters of colour, who might want to study engineering, for instance, and find great jobs that they currently are hugely underrepresented in. Hugely. And I've also worked in W Series, where the drivers are all women, and some of the people of people of color as well, and some of them are also LGBTQ plus. And I think that's been a, a great thing that I was involved in. It wasn't Formula One, but it's a great thing that I was involved in, working to try to break down those barriers and, and help those female drivers uh, get a chance that they weren't getting before. And then the other aspect of the minority that I'm talking about, which is LGBTQ plus people, you know, there are LGBTQ plus people in Formula One, still most of them are closeted, hidden, secret. When I arrived 30 years ago, I was known as the only gay in the Formula One village. And of course I wasn't. Everyone else was hiding. 
closeted, hidden, secret. But uh, I did encounter some homophobia back in that time. Uh, one particular driver used to call me, can I use this word? Yeah. Fat faggot, he used to call me, the fat faggot. I've lost a bit of weight since then, actually. I'd say the fat doesn't apply. No. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, I, I'm not, I, I'm not, a, nobody's ever called me Twiggy. I'm not that thin, but, uh, and I'm a bulky guy and I, 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 I work out and I, I, you know, I lift weights, but I'm not very fat. Uh, so anyway, he can't call me fat anymore. If he wants to call me that other word, he can, in terms of accuracy, because my attraction to males has not waned in those 30 years. But actually, I still think it's rude and unacceptable. Perhaps he wouldn't say it now. He's not involved in the sport anymore. Perhaps he wouldn't say it anymore, because hopefully he's gone on a journey in these 30 years as well, and perhaps has learned that that's not an acceptable way of addressing people or behaving. Anyway. Let's hope so, Matt. (laughs) Let's let's hope so. But nonetheless, I... One Sorry, thing about on. race in pride, Matt, is it, it normalises LGBTQ plus going to racetracks. It yes. normalises there being us around. Uh, I still go to Silverstone with my boyfriend, and it's we hold hands. There's always that look from the thirty thousand people around you, like there are gays here, yeah. <laughs> and it's true. Uh, so race in pride actually makes it more normal for for LGBTQ plus to be at racetracks, enjoying racing and enjoying fast cars. And, and that's a great thing to have happened. And, and, and I'm pleased you say that. And I'm pleased um, that you do feel welcome, but I'm sorry, obviously, that you get the looks. I mean, what, uh, why do I say the things I say on Twitter and stick up for LGBTQ plus people? And why do I tweet about it? And why do I, you know, why am I an active member of Racing Pride? I am because... I'm 60. I've been in the sport for 30 years. Um, I've been incredibly lucky in my career, incredibly lucky. And it feels right to perhaps, I mean, the phrase I always use is stick up for, to stick up for people who perhaps feel they're a minority, whether they're, you know, a terrified uh, gay boy in Saudi Arabia, or whether they are, someone who works in a factory in uh, Liverpool and just doesn't feel comfortable because of the nature of his mates, or they go to a public school where, you know, people like Boris Johnson pour, you know, scorn upon them and they have to lie and so on and so forth, or whatever other reason there may be um, for people not being comfortable to come out. And by the way, it's wonderful to come out, but you can only come out if you want to come out. And I think that Racing Pride has helped people come out, particularly engineers and mechanics, because marketers and PR people and journalists and so on and so forth, it's becoming now increasingly kind of okay to be gay, to be LGBTQ+. But still, for a mechanic or an engineer, it's still not quite so easily accepted. And, and again, I think it's not aggressive... Um, proactive um, homophobia. I think it's just, you know, the management of the teams thinking, well, they can't be gay, they're mechanics. Whereas, you know, graphic designer, yeah, 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 okay, he's gay, yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, that's fine. So, but all of all these people are part of the teams. And I've worked quite a lot with um, engineers and mechanics who, and I, you know, you don't approach them, it's not up to me to 
help someone come out. But if somebody approaches me or sends me an anonymous email, not from their Red Bull or their McLaren or their, uh, you know, Mercedes account, but from their Gmail account saying, look, I'm not going to say my name, but I work for McLaren or I work for Red Bull or I work for Mercedes and I know who you are. And I struggle with the fact that I am closeted because I've worked for the team for 19 years and I can't come out now because it will make out that I've been lying all this time. But actually, I'm now married to my male partner, same-sex partner, and I can't take him to the Christmas party, even though the others take their wives and girlfriends. And I feel terrible about it, and I'm leading a double life. And one of the things we do as Racing Pride is go into the teams and explain that. And we say to them, do you want your brilliant mechanic or your brilliant engineer or your wonderful designer or your clever aerodynamicist to be laboring under that degree of unhappiness and distraction because you know if you let him do that he will produce suboptimal work so if you actually make your company your team your former one team welcoming you have to make a bit of an effort if you make it welcoming to lgbtq plus people you will minimize mistakes you will make the work they do better you will make your car go faster. And you have to incentivize people. And when they see that, they say, yeah, okay, right. Well, we will now do a partnership with Racing Pride. So Racing Pride, obviously I was Aston Martin and I made sure that Aston Martin did have a partnership with Racing Pride, which it still has, the first team that ever did. Then Alpine and others will follow. Matt, you used the phrase there, suboptimal. Now, is that Ron speak? Matt is Ron speak. Yeah, <laughs> of course it is. Of course it is. But you know, suboptimal is a wrong word. Yes, yeah, it is a wrong word. But um, it, it's a it's it's a good word. It's uh, it, it's it, it explains that something isn't perfect in a way that doesn't attach an angry value to it. So it, it's quite a good word. I mean, there's lots of words that Ron uses that are not good words. I mean. Ron derides people for speaking gobbledygook, except he doesn't say gobbledygook. He says gobblegoo. And that's gobbledygook, actually. Sorry, mate. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So are you going to admit, Matt, that Ron's speak was really in a lot of his... um... I don't know, press releases and things like that. Were you a bit, were you wrong on some of those? Perhaps? Yeah, probably, probably. But, um, but, I mean, he does naturally do that. The thing about Ron speak, it isn't really long words and complicated syntax. It's just, if you ask me a question, if you say, should we go to Saudi Arabia, as you did in the last podcast, I will begin to answer and give my reasons why I think a certain view. Ron would answer it like this. And by the way, I won't do the delays as long as he would do them. <laughs> the delays, the pauses are minutes. And people we'd, will be. We'd need a third the... podcast if you did that. <laughs> <laughs> if you said, should we go to Saudi Arabia? He would go, wrong question. Ask me. No. Okay. <laughs> Territories adjacent 
not not the territories, but adjacent territories, Arabia. Not all Muslim. Are they Muslim? Well, most some Muslim, sunny, not sunny in that way. They are sunny, or but sunny Muslim. Anyway, he go on like this, and it will become a long, you know, with a whole load of um, cul-de-sacs. But actually, his thinking is incredibly acute, and uh, if he sees this, Ron, I'm terribly sorry because <laughs> I have huge, huge respect for him and gratitude. He hired me, paid me well. I worked 10 years with him and, uh, you know, he's been one of the most important influences on my career, but he can be maddening. And sometimes he can say something in five minutes that you can say in 30 seconds. But then sometimes he also says something that's so brilliant and you think nobody else would have, that's spot on. That is spot. That is what we should do. You're spot on. And that's why he won all these races and all these world championships. You know, um, Ron is not an orator, but Ron is a, superb original thinker and a big picture vision man i think uh, we all still think fondly of ron and whenever we see a tile on the mtc floor that looks like it's a slightly different shade to the others we we definitely point that out still <laughs> <laughs> that, that kind of thing would hurt him i remember saying when i was writing stuff for him and he would say uh, let's put it like that i said i can't have that that's not grammatical that, I'm a wordsmith, Ron, that is the equivalent of you seeing a wire hanging loose out of the, you know, if I see a split infinitive, that's a wire hanging loose. He's okay, right, I'll get that. No, okay, change it then. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. So, Matt, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, something that Andy Donnelly and I specifically have a lot of contact with you over. Um, you truly understand the value of fan engagement. And mm. I know at McLaren and, and with the papaya scheme and the things you got us involved in, we we really felt that from you. You you knew what you were talking about. You knew how we felt and you connected with us. So I just wanted to ask you a bit about your, your thoughts on fan engagement. Sum up, please, how important you think that is to the sport. And do you think there's any ways that they're, they're going wrong in, in some of the ways they're progressing now? Well, the fans are the most important people in Formula One and in football and in cricket and in everything else. The fans are the most important. Obviously, you know, the drivers drive the cars, the designers design the cars, the engineers engineer the cars and so on and so forth. And there's a whole army of support staff. And I was uh, happy and lucky enough to be in that army for many years. But the fans are what it's all about. And I think it took a long, long time for teams to see that at all. And social media was the beginning of it. I remember being at McLaren when I joined McLaren in 2007. There was a website, but it was absolutely rudimentary. It was simply uh, uh, where we would post the press releases once they'd been sent to the media. And that was it. And then I remember we just started a Facebook page. Uh, didn't have any budget for it. We just thought the only way to do this is to do this. We can't explain it to Ron and try and get budget for it. Let's just start it. So we started a Facebook page. And then gradually, obviously, it became th things get their momentum and the other teams started doing the same stuff. And some were ahead of us at that time, certainly. But I was in a very good position to be able to hire some great people. I'm going to name check some of them, actually. Uh, Steve Cooper who I hired again to Aston Martin and is still there. 
Rob Bloom, also now Aston Martin. Yep. Um, Penny Harrison, hired to uh, McLaren, now at Mercedes-Benz. So they've all moved on. Uh, and, and I don't really know necessarily the people so well that are at McLaren now, um, because, you know, I, I, I last worked there in 2017, which is six years ago, and people move. But those three people and others besides helped me produce and create, I think, a really fan-centric and fan-focused environment. And one of the things I remember noting, and I, I can't all good ideas, you can never remember whose idea it was. But I remember having a conversation with Rob, Rob Bloom, and saying, these super fans, and we called, we called you guys, if you don't mind me saying so, super fans. <laughs> Every time there's a tweet, you know, I notice the same people replying. Um, and he said, yeah, you're right. They, they are. They are. I said, they're very supportive. They're very passionate. Um, let's reward them. Let's engage them. Let's notice. Let them see that we've seen them. And I remember the first time we invited you. And I remember making a speech, which you were there and listened to, yep. which was about the death of um, Bruce McLaren and how the death of Bruce McLaren was an all-time low. And yet from that all-time low uh, uh, grew the mighty McLaren that, that you and I have all worked for, loved, blah, 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 blah. And um, you were all absolutely over the moon. I remember you, the looks on your faces when you realised that you had been invited to visit the McLaren Technology Centre. And then the looks on your faces when I surprised you by bringing Kevin Magnuson in to see you. Do you remember? Yep. Yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there yep. was, I realised that these people, real fans, these are the people who are the most important people. And here we are all these years later. What year would that have been? 2014, I think. I think it was, yeah. Yes. Yeah, because yep. Kev was a driver then and he only raced in 2014. He was a race driver that year. So that's nine years ago. Here you all are still. And, you know, um, and I'm still on your podcast, not that I work for McLaren anymore, but I'm still on your podcast. And um, I realised that there was some real value. I mean, let's be honest, marketing comms, uh, yep. PR value in that. But there was also something else, which is it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. And fans are incredibly important. And we continued that, obviously, with the same people that I hired, brought, brought them on. Then so Rob and Steve, who are still at Aston Martin, now Aston Martin do it. And probably everybody does it, as far as I know. But uh, I think it's incredibly important. And by the way, it's also commercially very important. What pays for motor racing? Sponsors. Yep. Sponsors. Why are they doing it? Because they want you... I don't just mean you. I mean the fans, the world, yep. to buy their products. If if it's a case of a B to C, you know, business to consumer product, they want um, people to be enjoying and seeing their products. Or if it's B to B, still, they want to be talked about in the right way. And the engagement of super fans is something that is not a charitable act by the team for the fans. It is the correct uh, mutual engagement that supports and sustains both entities that's really uh really good to hear matt because the times you mentioned were, were very special to us 
Um, and, you know, it, it, it just feels incredibly personal when you describe it like that because it, we, they, they were big moments for us and there'll be big moments for any other fans who experience them as well. So, so thank you. Yep. You're yep. most welcome. And I loved, I, loved, I loved it. By the way, those days were great days for me. You know, when I saw, of course, it's nice to stand up and tell a story and introduce you to a Formula One driver and see everybody's <laughs> face smiling. I mean, that's, that's, that's much better than going to a budget meeting with the CFO. I can <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 you know, just I'm still blown away by the opportunities that were given to us and things like that. And it's just, you know, very, like I say, Sarah says, very thankful for it. Um, and I always, I always say we should make some badges. We survived the Honda years because that's yeah. the way. That's the way as fans, it felt like that. They were tough times, you know. And uh, that was my, that was the worst part of my career, you know, because you know McLaren Honda was such a legend with yes. the Senna Prost years, winning forty four Grand Prix out of eighty. That's the the stat. It's pretty good, isn't it? It's pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> pretty good, pretty good. And we had high hopes. And then I remember going with Sam Michael. Remember Sam Michael? He was our yep. yeah, director, yeah. now gone back to live in uh, Sydney and doesn't really work in motorsport anymore. Lovely guy. I'm still in touch with him. I still WhatsApp him regular. Anyway, um, and we were good friends. And I remember going to the Honda factory, which is a brand new, huge factory in Japan. And I think that was about 2013, 14. We, no, 14 we went. And he said to me, obviously, he's an engineer, but I know my racing. And we looked around and he said, this won't be ready, really. Well, it won't be competitive. It might be competitive by about 2018, maybe. And he was right, wasn't he? Because there were three bad years, 2015, 2016, 2017, uh, when actually the fault wasn't only Honda, the chassis wasn't great either, but nonetheless, Honda wasn't, I think the word is suboptimal, isn't it? So Honda was suboptimal. <laughs> um, so was the chassis, but nonetheless, Honda was also suboptimal, and the results were very, very suboptimal, and embarrassing and upsetting. Uh, and then, of course, what's happened now? Well, the most dominant team in the world is using their engine, Red Bull, exclusively. Yeah. So Sam was right. It was going to get there, but it wasn't just ready. It, ne it needed more time. And actually, I think I slightly lost control of the comms at that time. Eric Boulier was very upset about it. Jonathan Neal was very upset about it. Obviously, neither of them works for McLaren anymore. Neither of them works in Formula One. And, um, and they were, you know, it was very difficult to get people to be publicly collaborative once it was clear that the results were going to be so bad then you had fernando who brilliant driver but you know on his deck chair uh, and then you had him talking about gp2 engine and it was very difficult he, he knows what he's doing great driver actually i loved working with him but he was always you know he knows what he's doing he knows what he wants to say and he knows the effect he wants to have he's a very sophisticated man in every way but um it, it was difficult it was very difficult very poor performance does make comms very difficult. It does to make them sound genuine, Matt, because we often feel that when we read the comms, when it's bad time, 
you know, you can tell. (laughs) It's honestly, you're sitting there thinking, what can we say? What can we say? I don't just mean in the press release, but in that as well. But what can we say? What, what is our, what are we going to say when we get to the next race? What are we going to, what mood are we trying to, you know, and you end up saying things like progress is not always linear. You know, you might, (laughs) you might take, a step back before you take two steps forwards, but everything's basically going in the right direction. But even as you're saying it, you're thinking, I hope I'm right. I hope I'm right. (laughs) Because of course the engineers are nervous and they're trying to, you know, save their skins. So they want to say the right things. And it's very, very tricky, very tricky. So you you touched there upon um, sort of driver relationships and things like that. Now, as fans, we've we've all got our favourite drivers that we've had over the years. Jensen. Well, Sarah, <laughs> you know. Um, um, but you know, as as somebody who works in a team and you've worked alongside a lot of drivers, has there been a particular standout for you? Somebody who's been really easy to work with, and maybe on the opposite side of that, somebody who's been completely the opposite. So I've had, um, I've been so lucky. I've worked with four world champions. Amazing, isn't it? I've worked with four world champions, Lewis Hamilton, Fernando Alonso, Jensen Button, and Sebastian Vettel. All magnificent drivers. Uh, I've enjoyed working with all of them. Um, Of the four, I would single out Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel, and I'll tell you why. Lewis Hamilton, because, you know, I used to say, people used to say, who do you think is the greatest driver of all time? And I would always say I couldn't separate the three. I couldn't separate Fangio, Juan Manuel Fangio from the 50s, Jim Clark from the 60s, and Atten Senna from the 80s and 90s. But I think now with his magnum opus of 100 plus Grand Prix wins and eight world championships, you saw what I did there. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> I, I think you, you can't take him off that joint first, first place. You can't. And I would I would put him there. A lot of people slag you when you say that. How you know? Why are you not putting Michael Schumacher there? All these people are great drivers. Obviously, this is my personal opinion, and I think that uh, Lewis Hamilton is up there and deserves to be uh, the joint best. I also think he's a remarkable person. I loved working with him. You know, he's um, sometimes difficult, nervily brilliant. You know. I imagine that if the five of us had been, sorry, the four of us had been sitting down making um, a movie in the 1950s, we'd have wanted Marilyn Monroe in our movie. Why? Because she was box office and she was brilliant. Would she have been the easiest to handle? No, but we'd have still wanted her because she'd have made our movie successful. That's why you want Lewis Hamilton. That's why you want Fernando Alonso. That's why you want all these people, even though they're not necessarily the easiest people. So Lewis is that, but he's also, I think, grown into a remarkable person. He's 38 years old. And I think what he does off track, he's a straight man, and yet he embraces LGBTQ plus equality. He wears a a rainbow themed helmet in countries in which gay men would be put to death for having sex. He does that as a straight man. I think it's remarkable. I think he's a great man. I think he's the greatest driver I've ever worked with on the track. And he's the greatest driver I've ever worked with off the track. And I'd say Seb as well. We talk about allies. Seb is an ally. 
you know, Seb is a straight man, married to a woman, three kids. And I remember when I started working with him in, uh, sorry, Aston Martin in 2021, and we started talking about the kind of work that he might want to do, comms work, media work. And he said, I want to make a difference. I want to do stuff that makes a difference. I've been doing all this kind of normal stuff, talking about tyre degradation and front locking and understeer. Well, I said, you will have to do a bit of that, I'm afraid. He said, yeah, I know, but can we do some, something that makes a difference? So we put together our programme, he and I, helped by Steve Cooper, Will Hings, other good people. And who are both still there, by the way, Aston Martin. And we won an award for it. The race website gave us an award, which was for the Sebastian Vettel comms campaign. And they called it the most inspiring campaign in all of most sport for the year. I was very pleased and proud with that. But really, it was him. I remember the first time we did an LGBTQ plus one, which is when it was became clear that in Hungary, they passed legislation recently that was disadvantageous to the LGBTQ plus population there. And I remember him just saying, this is wrong. I think it's completely ridiculous that anybody should tell anyone who they should love, who should, they should have sex with, and how they should live their life. So I'm going to say that. And then he, his famous same love rainbow yep. t-shirt, his uh, rainbow sneakers. He knew exactly what he was doing. He made sure he was photographed. And then he said the right things when the media asked him about it. And then he did various other things. I remember him saying, I can't believe I was in the factory. It was in Silverstone. Can't believe having driven from Heathrow to here, the car you sent me, and the rubbish I saw on the side of the M4, the M25, and the M40. Whereas the taxi that took me from my home in Switzerland to the airport, Geneva, went past not one discarded anything totally clean why does it have to be like that in your beautiful country it's got a good point hasn't he so we then invented the idea of him doing litter picking at silverstone and he didn't just do you know five minutes for the cameras he did a ton of work he did a ton of work uh back breaking work leaning over having just driven a grand prix not a full grand prix the car packed up after 40 laps but anyway uh as near as damn it a full grand prix and he then after the cameras had gone, he then said he wanted to go in the dust cart that evening back down to Northampton to the uh, refuse disposal uh, depot to see how the recycling was done and how it was all separated, cans and glass and plastic. What a man, eh? What a man. Amazing. An, an amazing person. And there are people who have um, reached out to him, uh, fans of his, for help people with mental health issues and the way he's responded has been incredible not not necessarily always publicly you know just doing something taking his time using his effort to try and make them feel better and that's the thing about the platform that superstardom gives you you know you earn a load of money you get a load of glory you win races and world championships but if you can also parlay that platform into doing something that is good for humankind, as both Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel do, then you're doing the right thing. And I think they both are. And I'd like others to do the same. And I hope they do. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Matt, it's been fantastic having you on here. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for for this one. It's, it's, it's been, been brilliant, absolute Matt. Pleasure. You're most welcome. I'm very honoured to have been invited and uh, good luck with, uh, with your project.
Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Cheers, Matt. Bye-bye.